Tonight, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. And our passage this evening will begin in verse 15 and uh, go through verse 29. Exodus 32, 15 through 29. If you remember the context where we are, Moses had been up on the mountainside meeting with the Lord. And the Lord was giving him instructions, giving him laws, giving him the pattern, the design for the tabernacle, for the house of worship for the house where God would dwell in all of its furnishings. Meanwhile, while Moses is up on the mountaintop with the Lord, the people of Israel down below are getting restless. They're getting restless, they're getting impatient, and unbelief starts to spring up in their hearts. And that unbelief causes them to essentially demand from Aaron that he do something for them to give them some kind of a visible manifestation of God in his presence. One of the commentaries I was reading said, could they not see the cloud, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire? Could they not see, have they not seen the rumblings on top of Mount Sinai? What, what more presence do they need? But they needed something tangible, apparently. They needed something visible they could see, something they could touch, something that was more in tune with their senses a sense experience. And so they demanded from Aaron that they make an idol, make gods for them. And in a moment of weakness, Aaron succumbed to their demands and Aaron said, bring me all your gold. And so they, Aaron took the gold from their jewelry, from their earrings, melted it down, took the gold from that and out of it fashioned an idol in the image of a calf of a young bull. And the people worshipped it. They offered sacrifices to it. In our text tonight, Moses and Joshua are going to be coming down from the mountain and they're going to be hearing sounds of singing, sounds of shouting, sounds of worship in honor to this piece of gold that they had made. No wonder in the last passage last week, we saw the Lord's anger burning. His holy, righteous anger said, I am going to destroy these people and I'm going to start over with you. And Moses, we read it in Psalm 106 tonight. If Moses had not stood in the gap, if Moses had not served as that mediator between God and a sinful people, then God would have started over. He could have started over with Moses. But Moses pleads with the Lord. He intercedes on his behalf or on the behalf of the Israelite people, and the Lord listens to the the petitions of Moses and says, I will not destroy them. So we've seen Moses the intercessor, Moses the mediator, the one who stands between. Tonight, we're going to see Moses the judge. Moses is going to come down from the mountain, and he's going to see what God saw. And just like the Lord, very same language, Moses' anger is going to burn. His zeal for the holiness of God is going to cause anger to arise within him because now he's heard the Lord tell him what's going on down there, but now he's seeing what's going on down there. He's seen what the Lord has seen and his his heart is filled with a zeal for the holiness of the Lord and he becomes angry and he, he acts as judge and 
brings punishment to the people to set things right. And so Exodus 32 verse 15 says, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil? They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today, for you are against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father God, we thank you for the mercy that you showed to the Israelite people when they were at the foot of the mountain, worshiping an idol. God, you showed great mercy to them in not destroying them. You remained their God and they remained your people. And Father, we thank you that you are a merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in compassion. We're thankful that you have shown that same mercy and compassion to us and that you have forgiven our sins in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now you are our God and we are your people. Lord, help us to learn more from this passage about who you are, your, your zeal for your own glory and your own holiness. May we learn tonight from the example of your servant Moses and his zeal for your name and your holiness. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time in your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Just to set the scene a little bit, God has told Moses what's going on. And so Moses starts to go down the mountain and verses 15 and 16 describe that Moses is carrying two tablets of the covenant law. And the way it describes it, he describes it with, with great honor. 
and it describes it very beautifully because it emphasizes the fact that these tablets are God's word. And not only that God has spoken them, but that God himself has engraved them. Using anthropomorphic language, attributing to God human characteristics, it says that God with his own finger wrote these laws on these tablets. So this is the divine work of God, and Moses is carrying them down. And these two tablets represent essentially the the charter, the, the foundation for this covenant that exists between God and his people. A lot of times when we think of the two tablets of law, we think of half of them being on one tablet and half of them being on the other. There is some evidence and even in the language itself in this passage to suggest that instead what we have is two copies of the covenant law. It says that they were written on both sides, which is highly unusual in the ancient world. Generally speaking, in the ancient world on a tablet like this, you'd only find writing on one side because to engrave on the other side, they would be afraid that they might break it. So they would only grave on one side. And so this suggests that perhaps you have half on one side, half on the other, but there are two copies. And that also fits the image of a covenant, doesn't it? Basically, we have two copies of the covenant, metaphorically one for God and one for the people. And so this is the covenant that represents the relationship between God and his people. And these are the ta- the covenant tablets that were supposed to go into the Ark of the Covenant before Moses broke them and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. But these are these are special, aren't they? These are these are God. These are from God. His word, his writing on these tablets. And so they start to go down the mountain and Joshua is probably about halfway. Joshua was not permitted to go all the way to the top of the mountain with Moses, but he did accompany Moses part of the way up the mountain. So Moses comes back down, and Joshua doesn't know yet what God has told Moses. So God's already told Moses what's going on down there. Joshua doesn't know what's going on. Moses meets him on the side of the mountain as they're going down, and Joshua says, it sounds like war going on down there. I don't know what's going on. And Moses says, no, it's not war. There's nobody winning. There's nobody losing. This is singing. And the word that's used here suggests like an antiphonal singing, a going back and forth, one side singing something, the other side repeating a refrain, antiphonal singing. And Moses says, this is going on down here. But apparently it was not your average singing. Apparently it was rather raucous singing such that Joshua could think, it's war cries going on down there. And so they begin to go down the mountain together. That's the scene. And then in verse 19, we see Moses see what God saw. And that brings us to the first main point of the message tonight. And that is we see Moses' zeal for the holiness of the Lord. That's really the theme that holds this whole passage together is Moses' zeal for the holiness of the Lord. And in verses 15 to 20, we see that zeal for the holiness of the Lord demands eradication of anything that is offensive to God. Zeal for the holiness of the Lord demands eradication of anything that is offensive to God. What does Moses do when he sees what's going on? He sees it now with his own eyes. 
And what he sees is worship. You think that's, that's great, isn't it? Worship. It would be great if it was God-ordained worship. If it was God-prescribed worship. If it was worship in the way that God had taught his people to worship him. If it was worship in harmony with the covenant that God had given them. But it is rebellious worship. It is worship that at least violates the first two commandments that Moses is carrying down the mountain. So it is illegitimate worship. It is pagan worship. It is worship more styled after Egypt or Canaan than it is the worship of the one true God. Some have suggested that at the bottom of the mountain, as a part of this false pagan worship, that there was also immorality going on drunkenness and revelry and sexual immorality. And that perhaps may be the case. But the text doesn't emphasize that. The text emphasizes the idolatry. That they were worshiping a false God. And in so doing, had violated, had broken the covenant that existed between them and God. So when Moses sees it, he is angry. Why? Because he is zealous for the Lord's name and for the Lord's holiness. His anger burns, and the words are exactly the same. God's anger burned when he saw what the Israelites were doing. As soon as Moses sees what they're doing, his anger burns, just like God's. And in that holy, righteous anger, Moses throws down the tablets that are in his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain, the same mountain where they had entered into that covenant. Moses throws them down, and some have said, this is a fit of rage. This is not a fit of rage. This is a controlled, measured response, an appropriate response of holy, righteous indignation to a great sin. And it's a very symbolic act, isn't it? It's a symbolic act because what it communicates is this covenant that you agreed to abide by, you have broken it. And in breaking the the tablets, Moses is signifying by a sign act that the covenant has been broken and the people are responsible. So he breaks the covenant, the, the tablets of covenant law. And then he sees the calf that the people are dancing around and worshiping. And immediately the first thing that we read is Moses gets rid of the offending object. Moses gets rid of the offending object. This is the thing that is offensive to God. Moses' zeal for the holiness of the Lord wants to eradicate it. And notice how it's described. It says he took the calf that the people had made. First, he burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder. Then he scattered it on the water. What does that signify? It signifies complete destruction. And the image is, the lesson that Moses wants to communicate to the people is, this is what you do to a false god. This is how an idol is to be treated. And interestingly enough, you go on reading through the scriptures, and uh, especially like in the book of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, when you see a righteous king come to the throne, who seeks to eliminate the idols within the land, some of this same language is used. We see this in the reign of Josiah. He takes it, he burns it, he shatters it, he scatters it. So in other words, Moses is showing by example, this is, he's showing how worthless 
and pointless this idol is. What does it communicate about a God if you can take it and burn it and destroy it, shatter it, and scatter it abroad? It's lifeless, right? It can't defend itself. Here is someone coming and immediately he can destroy it because it's nothing. And he wants to communicate that nothingness by the way that it ends up. It ends up as just like powder spread among the water. But then he makes the Israelites drink it. You think, wow. First of all, how can you burn gold and and grind it into powder? Well, one thing to keep in mind, too, is that it's possible that it was made out of pure gold, but it's also probably more likely that it was like the Ark of the Covenant in the sense that there was a frame of wood, and it was overlaid with gold. And so it's not just the burning of the gold. You're also burning the wood that is probably the, the skeletal structure of this god. And he's taking the remnants of it and throwing it in the water, this water that is there by the the Mount Sinai, and he's making the people drink it. What is the symbolism of that? The closest thing that we can find to this in the scriptures that is of similar imagery and similar language is in the book of Numbers. When a wife is accused of adultery. A wife is accused of adultery, accused of unfaithfulness. And according to this passage in Numbers, it says, Numbers 5, I believe, that the woman who is accused of unfaithfulness, of adultery, is to drink a, what, a bitter water that has had a powder ground up and placed in it. And based on what happens to her, basically it is a trial by ordeal. If nothing happens to her when she drinks this water, if she's fine, then she's innocent. But if she drinks this water and something starts to show evidence of sickness, of illness, I think the text says something like her stomach swelling, then it's an indication that she is guilty. That's the closest thing that we can see to this in Scripture. And perhaps that's what's going on here, is by means of this, essentially all the people are put on trial to see whether or not they have participated in this debauchery and this pagan idolatry. And therefore then to see who has been faithful to the Lord and who has rebelled. But they are doing, this is a part of their punishment. It's a part of Moses acting as the judge of the people. So Moses is zealous for the holiness of the Lord. He eradicates the offensive object and then he puts the people on trial to see who is guilty of this pagan idolatry. Then, verses 21 to 24, Moses then turns to Aaron. Moses turns to Aaron, and in these verses we see that zeal for the holiness of the Lord demands accountability from those who are responsible. Zeal for the holiness of the Lord demands accountability from those who are responsible, whether a follower or a leader. And so Moses turns to Aaron and he says, what did these people do to you that you led them into such a great sin? Now, for a long time, the way that I read that, verse 21, the way that I read it was the people threatening him. Or what have they done to you? What have they they threatened to do to you? But actually what Moses is saying here is, what have, what sin... What bad thing, 
what, what hateful thing have these people done to you that now you are seeking vengeance on them to lead them into such a great sin that will lead to their calamity and their condemnation? What do you have against these people? What have they done to you that you would respond in this way and lead them into this great sin to which they will face the judgment of God? Verse 22, Aaron responds. He says, don't be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. What is he doing there? The people, right? It's the classic blame-shifting move that Adam originated, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. God comes to Adam, what have you done? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat of? And what did Adam do as the wife? It's the wife you gave me. even tries to blame it on God a little bit. It's the wife you gave me. Adam tries to shift the blame. God turns to Eve. What have you done? It was the serpent. Blame shifting. This passage is also similar to another one in 1 Samuel chapter 15, where Saul tries to do the same thing. King Saul was disobedient to the Lord, and when he's confronted by Samuel the prophet, Saul says it was the people. It was the people's fault. He doesn't accept responsibility for his own actions and leadership. And so Aaron tries to pass it off on the people. You know how these people are? They're prone to evil. And certainly that's true, right? God has even said, God said to Moses, these people are stiff-necked, rebellious people. I've seen how rebellious and stiff-necked they are. So what Aaron is saying is true, but he's trying to pass it on. He's trying to pass the blame on to someone. And then... He says, they said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. He's basically just quoting what they said to Moses. All that's accurate so far. Then he says, take the gold jewelry, give it to me. Then I threw it into the fire. Okay, all good so far. And then out came this calf. As if by magic, right? In a way, very subtly, it's almost as if he's blaming God. He's blaming the providence of God for the way that this came out of the fire. But we know that's complete fabrication, isn't it? Because the text earlier specifically says Aaron fashioned it. He made it. Even with a tool, he made it into the shape of a calf. He's trying to pass the blame. He's trying to, you know, try to do whatever he can to get out of this. But Aaron is guilty, isn't he? He's guilty. And Moses is confronting him. He's holding Aaron accountable for what he has done. Moses' zeal for the holiness of the Lord seeks to hold accountable the one who's responsible, whether the leader or the followers. And by the way, there's a lesson here, isn't there, for the, the heavy responsibility that is on those in positions of leadership and the path that they can take people down for good or ill. We see it happen time and time again in the history of the nation of Israel that when a rebellious, wicked king came to the throne, the whole nation plunges into apostasy. Aaron failed as a leader here and he is held accountable In the last few verses, verses 25 to 28, we see that zeal for the holiness of the Lord demands righteous justice 
and punishment for those who have sinned. Zeal for the holiness of the Lord demands righteous justice and punishment for those who have sinned. Moses sees the people, they're out of control. Aaron has let them get out of control. They become a laughingstock to their enemies. Instead of Israel being a holy nation, a light to the Gentiles, a kingdom of priests, instead they become a joke to the nations. Instead of being unique, holy, set apart unto God, they become just like the nations in their worship. And so Moses, in his zeal for the holiness of the Lord, he responds with righteous justice. And by the way, when God said that he would not destroy the Israelites and start over with Moses, that did not mean that there would not be repercussions for those who disobeyed. So God said to Moses, I will not destroy them as a people, as a whole, and start over with you. But that did not mean there wouldn't be some punishment for this act of rebellion. And that's what Moses is carrying out here. And so he calls out at the entrance to the camp, the entrance to the camp, the gate, that's where the official business happens. Moses is standing at the gate at the entrance and says, whoever is with the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. And perhaps some would say, well, the Levites, they were part of Moses' family. But so was Aaron. And Aaron was the one leading them in this rebellion. So it's not just the fact they're a part of Moses' family. The Levites take it upon themselves here to to remain faithful to the Lord. And they come to Moses' side. And then Moses gives them some very tough instructions. He says, and by the way, this is not just from Moses. He says in verse 27, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. We don't have a previous record of where God told this to Moses, but Moses is saying, this is what the Lord told me is the punishment that I am to give. And so he told the Levites who rallied to his side, everyone take a sword, strap it to your side and go throughout the camp from one end to the other each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. Now, when you read that, you might think this is just a, you know, a free-for-all. I don't think that's the way that it's meant to be understood. In fact, based on, I think, probably likely what's going on in verse 20, that probably somehow these Levites are acting in a very judicious way, a very righteous way, and either by, by testimony eyewitness testimony, or perhaps even by this trial by by ordeal with the drinking of the powdered water, that they know who the guilty parties are. And they are put to death for their violation of the covenant, for their idolatry. And the fact where it says at the end, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor is not that they're just indiscriminately going and killing all their relatives. The point is, if one of the guilty parties happens to be a family member, you are not to show mercy. He is to be put to death. And so they go out and they carry out this punishment. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Now, we think that seems harsh, 
that seems very, very difficult. It sounds brutal to go out and to kill 3,000 of your own countrymen. But I think what this shows us is the seriousness of sin. Holiness matters. And Moses wants the people to recognize the depth of their sin. It seems brutal, but sin is brutal. This story reveals the deadly seriousness of sin. Temptation presents sin as attractive and harmless, but in reality, sin looks like 3,000 dead corpses. Death is sin made visible. Tim Chester said that death is sin made visible. And by this act, we see the heinousness, the rebellion of sin. Another commentator says radical sin is believed to call for radical measures. This is a great sin. The seriousness with which Israel takes the matter should occasion critical reflection by those of us who live in an age where virtually anything that goes by the name of religion is tolerated. This passage should make us stop and think about the holiness of the Lord and his zeal for that holiness and the glory of his own name. Lastly, in verse 29, we see that zeal for the holiness of the Lord results in abundant blessing and greater opportunity for service to the Lord. Zeal for the holiness of the Lord results in abundant blessing and greater opportunity for service to the Lord. In verse 29, Moses said to the Levites who rallied to his side, you have been set apart to the Lord today for you are against your own sons and brothers and he has blessed you this day. In other words, you have been faithful to the Lord and now he is blessing you. And the words that are used here is literally the filling of the hand, which throughout scripture is the idea of being set apart, consecrated for a special service. And perhaps the Levites here are being ordained, if you will, for special service within the Lord's house. They're being blessed. The Lord has blessed them. And so zeal for the holiness of the Lord results in the Lord's blessing. Let me ask us a question as we finish our time tonight. And simply this, how zealous are we are? Are we for the holiness of the Lord? How zealous are we for the holiness of the Lord? And how zealous are we for holiness in our own lives? What does Paul teach us in Romans 12? Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. May that be characteristic of us. May we take sin seriously. And we think, well, this is just Old Testament. What did Jesus say? If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Is that serious? Is that taking sin seriously? It is Jesus says to be ready, be better for you to go into the kingdom of God without an eye than to go into hell with both eyes. Sin is serious. God is a holy God. We are a sinful people. He has brought us into fellowship with him through the blood of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that our punishment does not rest on us. Our punishment rested on Christ. He took our place. 
And now we are in relation to the Lord. We are in covenant to the Lord. And we are made holy before the Lord in his sight by the blood of Jesus Christ. But we are still called to holiness, aren't we? We're still called to holiness. The writer of Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So we are still called to holiness. And we're called to seek that holiness with zeal and with a love for God. And so may we take sin seriously and may we take our holy God seriously because our holy God is a consuming fire, the writer of Hebrews says. So may we learn more of who our God is and learn more about how we should worship him and love him and seek his righteousness. Jesus says, don't worry about all these things, but do what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then these other things... They'll take care of themselves. They'll be added to you. But seek his kingdom first. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, our God, you are holy. You are righteous. You are perfect and infinite light and goodness. There is no sin, no wrong, no imperfection within you. Your holiness demands righteousness, perfection. Our Lord, we fall very short of that. And so it's with great thanks and praise that we can say that Christ is our Savior and that in his name we can be called your holy people. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness that you've offered to us and given to us that we do not deserve. Thank you for making us your own people, your own precious possession. Thank you for entering into a new covenant with us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, make us holy. As you are holy, make us holy. May we, in the power of your spirit and by your grace, seek that holiness in our lives. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.